Welcome to Business Talk Sister Gok. I'm Becca, and today's podcast topic is how to become a small business government contractor. And this is part of the series on how to work with the government that I wanted to do because I think it's so important for small business owners to realize that there there is opportunity out there to be able to work with your local government, state, federal, to be able to do business. And honestly, there's a lot of them that are looking for more people to do work for them. And there's just not enough people out there putting bids on contracts. So a big thing I think is really important to note, and I kind of covered a little bit last week, but this process is definitely more for people who are gifted at administration because there's a lot of reading, there's a lot of writing, and you have to really understand how to format things to make sure that it's organized and presentable to bid on contracts. Last week, we talked about a little bit on the different portals and process to get in there with your NAICS codes. Now that you're all set up in that system, you can expect that it will start matching you based on RFPs that are out there. Now, a big thing that I tried to talk about last week was that delegation of authority in threshold of dollar number. And a lot of times as a small business, this is your first time getting into the system and your NAICS code says, hey, I'm bidding on this. Um, You'll get matched with these really big requests for proposals, RFPs. And sometimes it can be overwhelming to look at and say, well, there's no way I could do all of that work just by myself. And that's okay. A lot of times getting in the system and getting registered as one of those disadvantaged businesses can give you an opportunity to be a subcontractor for one of those prime contractors. And I definitely think it's really important when before you even start bidding on anything is to really understand the different industries that you would potentially bid on. A lot of times they will have meet and greets or networking sessions. And since COVID, they started doing a lot of these online as well. So you can do Zoom meetings and meet with different primary contractors as well as the people who do the procurement for the contracts themselves. And you can ask a lot of questions, just general questions about the process or even look at some of the RFPs beforehand, underline things that you're not sure about or have questions on. Now, let's say you get an email that says, hey, you're invited to bid on this contract. You're gonna open the RFP. And there's a couple stages to a request for a proposal. So they open it up, and if it's right at the beginning when you see it, they will show you, here's what they're looking for, and then if there's any confusion on what you're reading, you can actually have the opportunity to submit your questions. So if the RFP has been open for a while and you're just seeing it for the first time, if you scroll to the bottom, you can usually see the question and answer section of other questions people had. Because sometimes when the contracts are written, it can be a little ambiguous as to what actually they're asking of you. And you can say, can you clarify this? Or does this fall under that category? And et cetera, et cetera. And that can be a really good place to start looking at what other people that are considering bidding on the contract are actually wondering about because those are things that you might wonder about too in the future. So even if you're not even ready to start bidding on a contract, I would start reading those just to familiarize yourself with the other questions people are asking and and read the answers so you're more familiar with what they're talking about. Now, I know I've said before, that the entire bidding process now has been set up based on a scoring system. But honest to goodness, you really still have to build relationships and network because people can't just know you based off a piece of paper. And a lot of times, 
other providers who are looking to bid on a contract will even consider you as part of a sub on their contract if they know what you're willing to do and they can trust you as a person. And honestly, just like any business owner that's gonna say, yeah, I'm gonna do this work, you really wanna make sure those on your team are people you can trust to get the job done because otherwise that's not putting your best foot forward and you're not offering good customer service. So being a subcontractor also will be a part of networking and getting to know people within the industry. And even just getting together and saying, hey, can I ask you a couple questions? I, I saw that you're doing this work. Uh, that That's really helpful. Another thing that I do, especially because they will invite you to put your price down of what you would charge them in order to do this service. Now, this is a really dangerous place if you've never done this before and you have nothing to go on because you could come in really low and they'll say, wow, you can do all the work for this price. Great. But the reality is if you bid too low and you end up taking more time than what you are charging for, you end up losing money. Now, that might not be as big of a deal for you if you're doing all of the work yourself and you're fine saying, you know what, this is a learning experience, it's research and development. For me, it's fine. But if you have employees and they start doing work that you can't bill for, you're suddenly at a loss. And even though you may have the business coming in the door, you might not necessarily have the profitability to sustain the contract. So it's really important to think through what your price point is. Now, a good way for me to do this is I actually will look at other companies that have contracts, especially like even nonprofits that I would compete with or whatever, and see what is the lowest level of job title they're hiring for and what is the hourly wage if it's available. Because I can calculate from there, okay, if they're paying this person to do this job, $15 an hour, and I know that it's going to cost me an extra X percent in terms of all of these things. If I were to pay myself to do it or pay an employee to do it, I'm going to budget for this per hour. And then if there's employee benefits or if you have health insurance, whatever, you have to budget all that in. Okay, so maybe it was 15, but now with all the additional costs, you're going to be at maybe $20 an hour. And then on top of that, you might have to have specific things for the contract, such as, um, liability insurance that's up to like x policy and it might not be the same liability coverage that you already have so those are things you really have to look at for your rfp to figure out what level of insurance you're going to have to have and you got to make sure that you calculate all of that into your costs in order to do this if you are going to be a primary contractor and you want to subcontract a piece of the business to somebody else. First of all, they have to have their own insurance if your insurance policy does not cover it that is to the same level as what the contract requires you to have. And on top of that, you also have to make sure that all of the people who you potentially are going to subcontract to need to be a part of the original RFP from the get-go when you put the contract in place. Because if you end up contracting to somebody else and there's no communication after you've won the contract, you could potentially not be meeting those 3% set-aside categories that they asked you to or whatever. So it's, it, and that communication piece with the state is really important. Now, 
I've looked at my contract a couple different times on different things. The, the procurement person that's managing those contract details, they're pretty good at interpreting what's going on. And if you ever win a contract and you have a, a subcontractor back out or somebody gets in a car accident, whatever, and you got something going on that you're just like, oh no, I gotta be able to resolve this. They're totally understanding. I mean, you can work with them, but a lot of times they'll have you submit things in writing or they'll amend the contract, whatever that is, to make sure that you can still service provide for them. You, they don't want you to just drop service altogether because quite honestly, they went through a lot of work to procure the contract with you that they did. So they'll work with you on it. And so if, if you can't budget for all unforeseen circumstances, that's okay. And I do think it's really important to also consider the community feedback sessions. So a lot of times within certain industry groups like the Department of Human Services or um, like DEED or whatever that is, they'll say, hey, we're going to have a provider feedback session where you can get together and they'll listen to what you're saying uh, regarding the fact that your business may not be able to operate at the price point they're willing to pay for the services. And they're open to that feedback. They need to know what the actual costs are. Plus, you know, we've had a lot of inflation happening and all of that. And what you were able to provide before versus now may change. So it's important to understand if you're going to have a contract that's maybe a year to two years long, you want to make sure to allocate that inflation increase within the contracts that you're writing. And if you think it's going to be a problem, that's where you can go to those community feedback sessions that the, the state will hold or the federal will hold. And they want to hear from business owners to say, hey, what you're willing to pay us to do this work is really not worth it for us or because we need this technology or we need to have this additional equipment in order to do the job well to the quality that we do it for everyone else. And if you're asking us to cut corners, you're not going to get the same level of service that everyone else is and the quality or whatever that's being provided will just not be the same that everyone else is getting. And they're open to that. They want to know that so they can take that information back to the budgeting committees to make sure that they're allocating the right amount of funding for what it should actually take to get the work done. Now, I think that's super important for you to understand because that's why we have a lot of the problems we do in terms of people in industries that are just not paying a lot of money and so nobody wants to work there because it's below the poverty line to do the work right and as a business owner you have a voice to be able to come back to those people in the listening sessions and say look i get what you're trying to do here but this is the reality of what it looks like for a business owner to be able to provide the services you're requesting and if enough business owners are coming forward and saying you need to change what you're doing if you want to get this service met they're going to take that feedback into consideration and that's the kind that they need to be able to leverage advocacy for the budget to change now this is really important when you submit your rfp a lot of times it will have this affidavit of non-collusion and a lot of people don't understand what that means. I didn't know what it meant when I first saw it. I'm like, okay, yeah, I'm not going to collude with anybody, but I don't, I don't really know what that would mean. So what it actually means is going to another contractor and saying, you bid at this price, I'll bid at this price, 
And then the government has no choice to be able to pick between the prices because we're ultimately in the back end almost creating like a monopoly of choice. If you have a concern about the price point, that's where you bring it up in the community feedback sessions. And they'll start to note too, if not enough people are bidding on things, then maybe they need to reevaluate what they're asking of people as well. But that feedback is so valuable to them. And I remember I went to a specific session um, for foster parents, honestly, on it was a community feedback session on MinAdopt, like the state's adoption program. And they said, well, we can't find people to do respite. We can't find ki- uh, people to do um, any of the additional stuff for to watch our kids so we can get a break. And they said, well, I just don't understand. And the, and the lady that was doing the listening session was hearing all this feedback and it wasn't getting across until I finally said, look, you're making people go through 12 to 20 hours depending on the agency of training that they have to have plus a background check plus all this other paperwork just to be able to watch somebody else's grandkids on the weekend once every couple months all of that's unpaid and unless somebody is super committed to saying yeah i want to care and it's an act of love it doesn't make financial sense for people to become respite providers. It really doesn't. And all of a sudden there was this light bulb moment for the MinAdopt listening committee where they were like, wow, we didn't realize that you had to do all of that to become certified and then none of it was paid time. And you're going to all this training just to be considered as an option for approved childcare. So That's why I'm saying, especially within daycare providers right now or group homes, all that kind of stuff, they're making legislation to say, you need to do this, 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 and this. And the rules are so stringent that sometimes it actually makes it completely unprofitable for people to want to even go into that industry. So I do think that's a huge piece that you should take away. If there's something you do want to do, but it just doesn't seem like it would be profitable and you could support your life on it, then bring that to the feedback sessions and let them know, hey, I want to be a resource, but the reality is your expectations are far too high for what's true of what can be done in the budget that you're putting out there. Okay, so the next thing you may notice within any of the new contracts that are coming out, the RFPs, is a specific section, it may be abbreviated as CMMC, which is actually a short version of the Cybersecurity Maturity Model. Now, this is a new thing. Before, it kind of went under what's called NIST, which is N-I-S-T. This stands for the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Now, that's a government agency, and it looks really scary when you start reading about it in the contracts because it's all this language about technology and if you don't really understand what they're trying to say you can get really freaked out like oh man my business is not ready for this i don't understand what they're trying to say so as a small business owner i'm just going to try to break it down because it's otherwise it's too intimidating now when we started having a lot more cyber attacks happening all of the security pro profiles, things that were set up, were kind of set up in like the 90s. Actually, like NIST was founded in 1901, but the reality is they haven't really done a ton of things until more recently to really crack down 
on making sure that you are secure in your use of technology. And the reason for that is because contractors and subcontractors are being targeted for cyber attacks. And when that happens, I mean, that's the reason why we have pipelines freezing or power grids going down. If you're contracting on a project like that, you could be putting potentially more than your business at risk. And it could be detrimental to national security, quite honestly. And so what they did was they tried to put in some rules in place and how you make your stuff secure to ensure that nobody is hacking your technology. Anything that's connected to the internet, you should really be thinking through, am I secure? Do I have a password on my Wi-Fi router? Do I have a password on my computer? Do I have um, any kind of like, am I using the same password over and over again? All of these different things, they want to make sure you're thinking through because it could be a threat to a lot of data as well. Let's say you're doing something where you're working with clients on behalf of the government. If you have any information about that client stored in an unsecure place and your computer gets hacked, that could be information that's now leaked and could compromise that individual. So it's really, really important for you to think through, have I been set up well with my IT in order to mitigate risk? And that can be installing any kind of like malware blockers on your computer, um, all of these different things. There's a lot of security professionals that can give you some really good advice on that. And part of that process is making sure that you have a plan for if crisis were to happen. So when I think through security, you also have to pay attention if you have a cybersecurity policy. If it is linked to a mass attack on, say, like an act of war, as an insurance company would say, uh, they would not allow you to claim that as something that you can file a claim on. So you really have to make sure you know what kind of insurance you have too. This kind of information becomes increasingly important for you as a business if you are ever handling client data or any kind of data for the government, such as like a server or just specific information about individuals, or you're gonna do some kind of like design and drafting, building plans, that's actually a really big thing where they don't ever want those out in a place where somebody could find them. I mean, could you, like, have you seen pretty much every spy movie ever when they have the plans for the building and they know exactly how the thing was built and where all the entrances and exits are? I mean, that's actually a huge problem, <laughs> especially if you're gonna be doing something where you're gonna build a structure for the government. And so all of that information needs to be very secure. And if you're doing what you need to as your due diligence as a small business owner, then you should have nothing to worry about. But it is important to be evaluating your cybersecurity and your technology security locally often. I would say annually you should have an audit done and quarterly you should be thinking through what are my risks. A lot of times the government will also ask you for your own delegation of authority for your business if you're in crisis. Look, this is not really hard to do. You can just get make a PowerPoint slide. You put, here's me. If I die, this is who's going to have all the passwords to stuff or whatever. <laughs> like, you just got to make sure you have a plan in case something happens. And that's kind of what they're looking for. A lot of the information in the RFPs make it sound so complicated and intimidating. And I can't stress 
the networking piece enough. When they have events, create those relationships, ask questions, because when you do, you're able to truly understand what each of these things mean. And in some cases, I've talked to people within the government, they're like, you know, I actually don't really pay a lot of attention to this specific category because it doesn't actually apply to our business, but we are required to have it in here. So yes, you should review this, but it's something that if you need to talk through this person that can help you on that side of your business to make sure you're ready to go. And it's it should not be intimidating. The more people you talk to, the better it is. So now that you know a little bit about what's in the contract and what to expect, just know that it is completely okay to once you get some stuff figured out and signed up to be in the portals and everything to say, hey, I would be interested in being a subcontractor for a primary. And there's a lot of meet and greet sessions where they can actually connect you to people that are in your industry looking to have subcontractors. If there isn't anyone that is interested in doing that at the time, you can still kind of set up meetings with different contractors just to find out what is available for the future or potentially if you could even work for an organization as an employee first and foremost to see if you can understand the whole ropes before going out on your own. Quite honestly, a lot of people who are contractors for the government started that way. They worked for another organization doing something similar and realized, hey, I can go do this myself now and I can have a little bit more control of my schedule because I'm a small business owner instead. And they've gone out and started businesses that way. So it is okay not to just jump straight into being a small business that works with the government. Do things at the pace that you feel comfortable with and do it in a way that makes sense for you. You don't necessarily always have to go out right away and start a small business to contract for the government. Sometimes the best experience that you can get is working at another business, getting a job there, and learning all about the way that they do their government contract. In the gawk portion of this episode today, I'm gonna to talk a little bit about what you should be aware of if you do get into the government portals and all of that and register your business. <laughs> There's this button, and it's just a little checkbox within the federal system that says, would you like essentially your information to be shared with other people that you're listed as a vendor. And while this can be a good thing, <laughs> I don't think it's a good thing for most businesses. And the reason for that is because you get thrown on this list and there are all of these companies that just pay attention to whether or not you registered your information there, right? And they all of a sudden start contacting you for all of these services and offer you things and send you things in the mail and all this, all these kind of services to help you with government contracting. And it's kind of, it's kind of like unnerving how overwhelming <laughs> it can be. So that's a little caveat I would have as you're going through the application process, kind of really think through if you want to be listed publicly as someone who is available for government contracts, because it can end up creating more chaos than it's worth. Typically though, your PTAC advisor or SPDC person that's helping you set it up usually will tell you if it's a good idea or not based on what your business needs and all of that. So <laughs> thanks for joining me today. If you enjoyed this episode, you can give it a review on Spotify and I will see you next time.